Welcome to BioChat, a podcast by Actual Technology. My name is Ken Love, and with this podcast, we aim to familiarize you with not only Apple's contributions to efforts in scientific discovery, but also to highlight the direction of ongoing research and help scientists determine how to best leverage their skills to improve global human health and quality of life. Join me today in welcoming Dr. Hao Cheng. He is a PhD and the Chief Scientific Officer at Eurogen, which is an Apple company. He specializes in antibody discovery and engineering. How are you doing, Dr. Chung? Hi, Kim. Thanks for inviting me to this podcast. I'm doing great. I always ask my guests this, and we worked together. We met at the company retreat, and that was a lot of fun. Why do you love science? Where did you come from? You know, where were you born? Where were you educated? (laughs) All that kind of good stuff. So so I was born in China, and I did my undergraduate education back in China. And after that, I came here to United States for my graduate school. And I did my PhD at Dartmouth College with a focus on protein engineering and primarily using the technology, which is called ESA cell surface display. So ever since then, we have been using all kinds of different protein engineering tools, including direct evolution or rational design to help enhance the performance of proteins, antibodies to meet their different criteria. And ever since then, I've been working with several different biotechs after graduation. And actually, I, I did my uh, my own startup for my first employment, which was later acquired by a different pharma. And I joined Eurogen about two and a half years ago. And ever since then, I've been working, serve as the chief scientific officer at this company. I really enjoyed my current career for the moment because we bring smart and cool antibodies to our partners. There was a a friend of mine in graduate school who went to Dartmouth before she went, uh, came to our PhD program, and uh, yeah. she she became an MD PhD. So very cool, very smart friend. So that I also had a another friend whose brothers went to Dartmouth. He he went to Berkeley with me, but uh, his brothers went to Dartmouth. So yeah, it's like oh yeah, that there are other Ivy League schools other than Harvard and, <laughs> and Yale. So that that's uh, really cool that you got to go there. That is beautiful up there. Uh, it's beautiful, but it's also in the middle of nowhere. But it's it's the best season in the winter time that you can do a lot of the snow activities. We have our own ski resort at our college, which I, I love it. Aplonal is a leader in biomolecular solutions with a comprehensive array of reagents and molecular enzymes to assist in bioscience research in diverse fields. And now that Aplonal and Eurogen have merged, we are dedicated to bringing also quality customer reagent services to clients who want to study a target for which there are no adequate commercially available products. So with Abclonal and Eurogen's CRO services, our custom reagent services, in terms of the antibody development, we do provide antigen design, which I believe is complementary, which is really nice. So as Dr. Wu told me, like the best way to get a good antibody is to start with good antigen design. From there, you do discovery, and then you do the engineering, and then you produce it for the customer in large scale. So your expertise is in the engineering, but I think we need to remind our customers about how we generate these quality antibodies. And we have this proprietary platform known as SNAP. Basically, we abbreviate as SNAP because this is making a monoclonal antibody using a single primary B cell ex vivo expansion which is uh, something that other companies simply don't do, or at least they don't do very effectively. 
And from there, we can make this uh, very cost-effective antibody because we screen right away. We are able to pick out the best uh, binding or best reacting antibodies, and we are then able to cultivate it from there and shortens the time span and shortens the amount of resources and money that's poured in. So that's SMAB in a nutshell. Dr. Wu did talk about it, and I'll link to that webinar in the show notes. We can actually talk about the rabbit monoclonal antibodies, which is what SMAB is based on. We want we will talk about why we choose rabbit in a later sense, but our customers actually do a lot of in vitro diagnosis. So diagnostic products, assay development, uh, immunobiological assays. We also do anti-idiotype antibodies because a lot of people do pharmacokinetic or pharmacodynamic studies to just see how their drug interacts or how the antibody interacts with the drug or the target, et cetera. We also use research tool antibodies. So in addition to things that might end up in Avclonal's catalog that you can use for Western blot, immune chemistry, and so on, we also have some translational modifications. And finally, we have these therapeutic antibodies. You've probably seen those commercials where they tell you like in the first 10 seconds, this drug does this, and then they spend the last 50 seconds telling you how this drug is going to kill you, right? So those kinds of antibodies are there. And this is basically what the current therapeutic strategy is, is to create an antibody that finds a specific target and really targets its action towards that target. So people may raise the question that, so when do you want to engineer a specific antibody? So most often that you will not need to engineer your reagent antibody. For example, if you have your favorite Western blood antibody against the target you are working with, that antibody probably come directly from the animal immunization. So scientists or researchers, they won't engineer any two antibodies or anti-idiotype antibodies because they mainly serve as one defined and specific goal. However, when it comes to therapeutic antibodies, usually like this represents the most challenging antibody territory in the field that you are what working with the most complicated species, human beings in this field. You are going to inject those antibodies into human beings. You want to make sure that your therapeutic antibody can target the disease target very well without any what off-target toxicity. It will be able to last long enough in the serum to create a better half-life half existence time in the circulation system. You also want to make sure that this antibody has the best safety profile with minimum of immunogenicity. And now all those complicated in vivo questions gave us the direction that why we want to do engineering. It's all because we want to tackle those issues to make this a better product, a safer product for human beings to fight against all kinds of different indications. And also another message I want to deliver here is that when talking about therapeutic antibody, people may think that, oh, this field is dominated by mouse antibody. However, I want to emphasize that actually people have already bring, brought their attention to rapid monoclonal antibodies. There have already been two rapid monoclonal antibodies being approved by the regulators targeting on both uh, VEGF and CGRP which means that as a new and rising star therapeutic modality, rabbit monoclonal may re represent a potential future direction for the development and the discovery of therapeutic antibodies. Yeah. I know that a lot of 
traditional uh, antibody development was because of mouse hyperdoma. So the moment they discovered hyperdoma technology, we were finally able to set up those monoclonal antibodies. And that was finally adapted for rabbits and other animals as well. Uh, there's also phage display. In our companies, we use a single B cell. Do you have any comments on why we are transitioning again towards the single B cell? Yeah, hybridoma is still the, the best technology or most popular technology for the mouse antibody discovery and developments. And still, I'm a big fan of the mouse hybridoma because this technology was invented back in 1970s. Even after these many years, it still shines in the field. The reason that why Eurogen wants to get into the field of the single BCL, and that's for several reasons. One reason is that we were able to find a pretty awesome hybridoma cell line that can be used to fuse with the primary mouse B cells. However, for other species like human beings, rabbits, unfortunately, we don't have that good melanoma cell line that we can use to fuse with to create like those immortal, like never die cells. So we have to get around with some of the potential issues in these fields. And single B cell would be the way to, way to go. And another thing is that benefiting from all the advancements in the instruments and those fancy phonocytometer equipment, nowadays we were able to perform some antigen-specific B-cell sorting. And thanks to our own in-house special formulation, so we can conquer the issue that the primary B-cell culture in the XVL environment. So combine all those advancements in the equipment, the XVL culture or formulations, Nowadays, we can actually be able to culture the primary antigen-specific B-cell in the ex vivo environments, and we can also go beyond that to keep those B-cells happy, make them expand, secrete antibodies without fuse to any myeloma cells. So it's just like all the good things happen, we already have in hand. So we put those piece, uh, part of piece, uh, puzzles together, and we were able to make this single B-cell technology available to all our collaborators. And thanks to that high throughput screening, we can screen like thousands of different functional antibodies in within a few days. So we, we believe that this may represent the, the future direction compared to the time-consuming and labor-intensive mouse hybridoma technology. Obviously, a lot of our customers do want to eventually get a good enough antibody that they can turn into a therapeutic. This is just a little history lesson. The very first therapeutic monoclonal antibody that was approved by the FDA was in 1986. It's almost 40 years ago. So it's been 40 years since the very first. And now we have hundreds that are either in approval or on the market. They can anything from cancer to viral infections, autoimmune disorders. So I've, I've seen this commercial for Ocrevus, which treats uh, multiple sclerosis many, many times. Well, you know, they, they do it during baseball games because, unfortunately, the uh, audience for baseball games is getting older, and a lot of them actually develop multiple sclerosis. So I guess that's why they're targeting it. And what's interesting to me is there's not just whole antibodies, but also nanobodies, biosimilars, fab fragments, FC fusion proteins, uh, SCFVs, and so on. That actually requires you to take the original antibody and do a little bit of engineering. And we'll get into that later because I know that this is your area of expertise, but there are a lot of challenges in making these antibodies 
And this is why the expertise that's inherent in Eurogen and Aplonal's custom antibody services is so important because we want to be able to generate a very diverse pool of B cells from which to screen from. We need to have a very efficient screening process. We need to then assay these antibodies, characterize them, do some quality control, make sure that they are actually looking for and binding to the correct target. And finally, this is your area of expertise, the engineering part. Because if you think about it, Dr. Wu was with us last time that he was talking about how to generate the initial antibody. But what you're doing is you're actually saying, hey, we have a customer. They want to improve that antibody. They either want to make it bind the target better or bind it a little differently for their particular application. What are some things that could be done to modify the antibody for more diverse or clinical applications? And in doing so, you also want to make sure it continues to target the exact target that you were originally designed it for. Yeah, I agree that usually once you have already acquired a potential lead candidate from your discovery campaign, and this discovery campaign could be either the traditional mouse hybridoma being getting you the mouse antibody, or it could be through the phage or yeast cell surface display to get your nanobody. So no, regardless of the ways that you get those antibodies, usually once you have a, a panel of the need candidate to work with, then you will ask yourselves that whether those antibodies will meet your ultimate goal to treat the human disease or not. So usually it will all first come to the question that all those antibodies come from the animal species. So they represent external sources of proteins to our human beings. And as you all know that our human beings have a very robust and strong immune systems, and they will always fight back when you inject any external proteins to our uh, intravenous uh, systems. So the first question, it usually comes to the antibody humanization, to try to minimize the animal source of the amino acids to make it as human as possible. And in that way, we can somehow trick our immune system to make it think that, oh, this actually is a part of our human body immune antibodies. So in that way, we can minimize any of the anti-drug immune responses that will arise in our subjects. So that will be usually the first question we want to invest on, that is the antibody humanization, to make it more safe. How can you fix an antibody? Well, you can change out the heavy chain. So that's isotype swapping. You can't humanize it, as you said to reduce the immunogenicity when it's injected into the human patient so it does what it's supposed to without getting flushed out by the host immune system. You can improve deliverability. So the problem with antibodies is because they're like 150 kilodaltons or so, they're huge. And so delivering it to the proper part of the body is difficult because of the large shape of that antibody, the large size. So why not just use the particular fragment that just binds the the antigen, you can link it to something else, you can link it to a payload. There's a lot of uh, studies into antibody drug conjugates that I believe might be a little better if you can fix the delivery of it. And you can also fix the FC portion to basically bind the proper FC receptor and make sure you drag along like a neutrophil or a macrophage or something in order to attack the tumor or to reduce the amount of inflammation in an area. So I can give you guys a few concrete examples that why we need to do those type of specific engineering. For example, antibody fragments 
The traditional natural four-length antibody will be 150 kilodaltons. It's a huge molecule when compared to the small molecules. So when we are talking about antibody fragments, so wh why do we need antibody fragment? It's mainly because that the binding part or the functional parts uh, of the antibody is actually already resident in the fab portion. So we only need that fab portion to be able to bind to the partners. The FC portions help with interacting with either immune cells or help to extend the serum half-life. But however, there are some cases that we don't need that to happen. For example, if we are doing some immable imaging, we want to be able to image that targets from cancer cells uh, with a uh, high precision specificity. But we also want to that imaging enables to get out of the, the circulation system after the purpose. So in that case, we usually will apply to your antibody fragments in that case. And another situation is that when you need market-specific antibodies, it's much easier to play around with different fragments just to put them together with by different linkers. It's more like playing like the, the toys, the, the Lego toys, to, to assemble them in different ways to make it has the desired binding specificity against different targets simultaneously. And for the isotype swapping, so in the field of the therapeutic antibody, people usually working with either IgG1 or IgG4. And that's because IgG1 is known to be really important to recruit other innate immune cells, like dendritic cells, microphage cells, to help kill the maybe the cancer cells. Well, on the other hand, IgG4 is a little bit more resilient to be interacting with the FC gamma receptors. And in that case, you can be playing with uh, safer uh, immune systems. If your target is on the immune cells and you don't want the innate immune cells to accidentally kill your, your healthy immune cells, in that way you may consider using IgG4 as a mentioned scaffold. So that may well be the reason to choose between either IgG1 or IgG4. And FC gamma receptor, as Kim already mentioned, that we are playing around with different mutations point mutations that the scientists have already identified that are critical or which are in the interaction interface between the FC domain of the antibody versus the FC gamma receptor on the immune, innate immune cells that can fine tune the binding affinity between every single FC gamma receptors from FC gamma R1 to FC gamma R3. So in that way, you can either enhance or decrease the ADCC or ADCP functions. I guess the quick and dirty way, given that we use rabbit antibodies and rabbit antibodies usually have just the one IgG uh, subtype, you just swapped out that subtype for human IgG1 or an IgG4. But you also have to make sure the rest of the antibody is not immunogenic. So it's not just the antigen binding sites, it's the rest of that whole 150 kilodalton molecule that you have to humanize. This is one of the most popular applications to antibodies is to humanize them because you want to make it easier for therapeutics to get into the human, not be flushed out, it's safer for them to use, and it actually enacts the correct immune responses from your innate and, and host and adaptive immune system. So you can elaborate on the platform we actually use to humanize these guys because this is pure engineering, right? You're using your existing target-specific antibodies, and you are changing it into something that will work much more effectively within humans. So I think from this workflow schematic, you can see that we have two different colors. So one is the yellow color, and another one may be the blue. 
so the so the yellow color represents the animal source amino acid, which means that those are the amino acid or peptides existing in rabbits or mouse or llama. Well, like those blue domains represent the human being amino acids. So the idea here is that we want to swap in as many blue portions as possible and to keep the minimum of the yellow portions, uh, our finalized uh, antibody sequences. So as you can see that we always do that in a stepwise way. So we don't get that done in, in one single engineering effort. So usually the first step is going to make this chimeric antibody, which means that we keep the variable region of the original antibody, and we are going to swap the constant regions of the original antibody species. So people have already realized that the constant region is less likely to get involved in antibody and antigen interactions. So by doing that constant region swapping or replacement, it's very unlikely that we will have any major impact on the antigen and antibody interactions. That will give us this chimeric antibody. So in old days, before all those cool antibody humanization technology come out, people actually use chimeric antibody to inject human beings. So that will be the final product that we, we work with as a therapeutic drug back in maybe early on late 1990s or early 2000s. But then after some time, people feel we can do one step further to further humanize that part, like within those you know, parts. Then we come to like this fine resolution that we further divided this uh, yellow part, the variable region, into the framework part and the CDR part. And we have this assumption that it's usually the CDR part, the flexible CDR loops, which are responsible for the antibody and antigen interactions. And all those framework regions, which were denoted as light blue here, that only serve as a scaffold that can help to stabilize the flexible loops. So the idea here is that we are going to keep the animal originated CDR regions, but we are going to replace the framework from the animal species. That's what we do by doing set of different antibody sequences blasting and to find what will be the best donor human germline. And then we did this grafting by grafting the animal CDRs into the human germline frameworks. After that, maybe there would be some a feel fine tuning to mutate a feel critical amino acid residues back to its original format in order to best stabilize the construct. And then that will get us into these finalized sequences with the majority of the framework already being replaced as, in, as the human germline. Maybe they would be decorated with a few single amino acid substitutions and have been back mutated in the animal sources. But that will eventually give us this humanized antibody with more than 95% of the sequences have already been replaced with the human source amino acids. That will be the humanized antibody that people usually uh, work with as their final products as the therapeutic modernity. Eurogen has had a lot of success in making these kinds of products for our customers. We could talk about the engineering case mm -hmm. studies that you provided to us. The first one is this rabbit anti-human CD40 agonist antibody. So the way I understand CD40 is that it's a co-activator for a uh, molecule for BDNT lymphocytes. So it's not just like the MHC and T-cell receptor interaction. There's also CD40 and CD40 ligand. So this is for a company called Apexogen, and they were very gracious and allowed us to share this data. 
So this is APX0005. It is noted as the first rabbit monoclonal antibody or original anti-CD40 therapeutic antibody in phase two study. Tell me more about the developmental process of this antibody and uh, how it's working for our customers at this point. Yeah. Yeah, so I think the story of this project comes from uh, one of the conferences that we came across the people from this company, and they had this poster disclosing their uh, awesome therapeutical rabbit CD40 antibody. So I think the idea is that we want to use this antibody to power up our immune cells to make them to be able to uh, clear out the, the, the cancer cells within our human bodies. So that will be this agonist CD40 antibody's primary function, prismal function. So the way that we carry out this project is that we did our traditional SMAP platform uh, with a carefully designed uh, immunogen, because as Dr. Wu said, yeah, a good antibody always starts with a good antigen. Otherwise, it will just be garbage in, garbage out. And by the end of our SMAP, a single B-cell sorting antibody discovery platform, we were lucky enough to identify a few actually three functional antibodies that were able to show very robust uh, in vitro agonist function in this reported cell assay. But that's still a cell line. So we want to go one step further to using some human primary cells, that is the PBMC cells, to compare. So this would be our agonist antibodies, and this would be our natural ligands, which would be the CD40 the human CD40 ligand, that is the natural ligand of the CD40 receptors to stimulate the receptors. And we did this that by head-to-head comparison. The results, to our surprise, turns out that our antibody was three to five times more potent to stimulate the neutric cells compared to the natural ligands. So we're really proud of these results, and we think that at the end of the day, we were able to draw the conclusion that we have identified some super functional agonist antibodies that can really power up the dendritic cells, uh, even with the human PBMC samples. Usually with dendritic cells, you're using them as antigen-presenting cells so that they activate the rest of the innate arm. They're yeah. basically saying, look, there's this antigen, and now I'm showing it to you, and now all the neutrophils and macrophages are going to be mobilized to attack the antigen. Uh, do you happen to know what disease they were looking for, or was this just a general drug? What what are they trying to do with this particular product? I think it's mainly for the immune oncology and like some solid ah. tumors. So people don't restrict themselves with one specific disease indication in that field or not. So usually they will try several different indications in parallel and see which one gives them best clinical benefits to the human subjects, but still within the immune oncology target. We also have a CD40 and HER2. So HER2 is ERB2. That's uh, one of the EGF receptor family, receptor tyrosine kinases. And in this case, this is a bispecific antibody design. Is this actually a natural evolution from the previous case with epixigen, or is this a separate case? You just, there was a different customer who wanted to both activate a B or a T cell and also be able to target HER2 on, say, a breast cancer. Yeah, it's actually a continuous story from the previous projects. So since we have already discovered a bunch of potent anti-CD40 agonist antibody, 
So we did one step further and we completed the CD40 antibody humanization. After talking to one of our partners from a biotech company, they said that why don't we make some CD40 and HER2 bispecific antibodies? I think this idea was coming out from uh, academia because we saw one publication talking about that the combination of those two targets can really have some good synergistic effects by killing the HER2 positive cancer cells. So we come up with a lot of different designs. Protein engineers, they have a lot of different smart ways to play around those different pieces of toys and to assemble them into different formats. So we don't want to restrict ourselves with one unique biospecific antibody design. So on the other hand, we actually came up with dozens of different designs and then to did a thorough evaluation uh, on, on different characteristics. First of all, we will evaluate that, whether we can successfully express those biospecific antibodies or not. What will be their solubility look like? What will be their expression yield look like? And whether we can successfully purify them or not? Or whether these will have uh, some quite some annoying byproducts coming out from this biospecific antibody design? So what will be the easiest way for the expression and purification? So that will be one hand. And after that, if we were lucky enough to acquire some of the pure biospecific antibody constructs, uh, then we will did some further in vitro cell line binding assays to making sure that our engineered biospecific antibody, they can still represent the potent binders to both CD40 and the HER2 targets. Actually, given the fact that we have several very unique and diverse designs, their binding profile against the targets actually differentiate a lot for both CD40 and uh, HER2. Some of them represent a very potent binders to both targets, and those will be the ones that we carry forward to the next step of the in vivo evaluation. So for those in vivo evaluation, that's still ongoing, and hopefully we can share more exciting results with the audience in the future. The way I understand biospecific is that usually antibodies are bivalent, so they have two arms. Both arms will recognize the same antigen. And one of the diagrams, you have one arm recognizing, say, CD40, and the other arm recognizing her too. But then I see, like, you're introducing extra hinge regions to stretch out in case there needs to be, like, a specific space between the two cells that you're trying to uh, yep. target. You also have one where you are attaching one of the uh, antigen binding domains to the FC portion. So uh, at that point, I'm just wondering, hey, does it not uh, affect its binding to FC receptors? I I'm sure there are other designs that you have not actually shown on this particular diagram. And for those listening yeah. at, at home, uh, you can't really see it, but we'll, we'll put the <laughs> video in the link in the show notes. There's like a lot of different considerations. And I imagine that you use a lot of the uh, computer modeling and also your own experience to determine what is the best possible strategy for any particular target? I think usually like for different targets, or uh, people will come up with different designs. For example, you have brought a really good point that what like these interactions will impact the FC recruitment to other FC gamma expressing cells or not. As you can see that we have one design that we put the green binding arm on the C terminal of the FC portions. And I can easily imagine that for that particular design, it may somewhat interfere with FC and FC gamma receptor interactions. But for other designs, if we have the green and the purple part, both on the ARM1 and ARM2, 
in that case, I would assume that the FC interactions will be less likely to impact the waste. So usually it will really depend on what's the nature of your targets and what those targets will be presenting on one cell or two different cells and whether you want to recruit some any other additional innate immune cells to get into this party to play around with the dendritic cell from the CD40 or the herd expressing cancer cell or like these interactions or not. We will do some rational design before we came up to the experiments, but eventually it will come to the bench scientists who can answer the question that which combination or which design gives you the best cancer cell killing effect throughout the in vitro and the in vivo experiments. That will be the ultimate answer to which design will be the winner for the other biospecific. So this is something that I talked to you about. I, I always thought in silicone meant like on a glass slide because they're made of, you know, silicon dioxide glass. Mm-hmm. But in silicone actually means you're doing this on a computer using proprietary or adaptive software. So here, from a panel of antibody clones with similar in vitro functions, in silico developability scanning was conducted, and the one with the least potential liability issues was picked and carried forward. So can you tell me what this target was for and what the intended uh, function of this target would be? So for the confidential reason, I cannot tell you what are, what is the target of this molecule, but I can tell you more about what's the intention of the research here. So the intention here is that even though you have already identified your favorite lead candidate, which is really important at clearing out the cancer cells, you still want to evaluate other aspects or characteristics of this particular molecule. And here we are looking at the chemical developability issues. So basically, you know that all those drugs, once they were created, they will be manufactured and maybe stored in the freezer until they can be utilized to inject into human beings. But since we are talking about those big molecules, which has more than 150 kilodaltons, Sometimes they will be subjective to some potential chemical liability issues. For example, like this tryptophan will undergo oxidation during the long-term storage in either the cold chain storage and all the other systems, they may start to pair with some other unpaired systems in that molecules. And then we also have some methylene oxidation, the isomerization or deamidation issues coming out from the original amino acids of that constructs. So from that perspective, even though both two clones have the similar potency in binding in out cancer cells, we would love to choose one clone that has the minimized potential liability issues, which will make it much easier for the downstream manufacturing, storage, and the long-term planning, because like this drug will be eventually utilized in the human subjects. That's what we are doing here, but by doing this sequence-based scanning using our algorithm or software to help you identify the clone that has the minimum chemical liability issues by looking at their primary sequences. So in terms of liability, you're just saying like what can really cause my molecule to change in structure because of natural degradation, oxidation, and other chemistry-related effects. So you're actually looking for stability. Like how can I make sure my drug stays that particular drug for as long as possible, which is a really good consideration to have. Past few years, like you've probably seen like the Dolly and ChatGPT, there's been like a huge 
uptick in the use of artificial intelligence. And it's not just in generating silly pictures or, you know, uh, a person cheating on their college paper. It's actually being used. Like my friend at an RNA company is using artificial intelligence to determine better targets so that they can better drive the research. So how are you guys actually using artificial intelligence to help predict the more, say, effective binding routines? And therefore, I believe you are able to now basically have a friend in artificial intelligence telling you where to go to generate these improved antibody products. So how are you guys leveraging artificial intelligence now? And also, what's yeah. this EP assay? <laughs> yeah. So actually, like this EP assay means active binning assay. That means that usually once you have identified a panel of different antibodies, you will raise the question that, oh, where do those antibody bind? For example, if I take myself as an antigen protein, and why does this antibody bind to my head, my shoulder, my arms? So that's the question people are always curious about. Usually, like people want to identify antibody pairs that can bind to different regions of these target antigens. For example, maybe one antibody binds to my head and another antibody binds to my shoulder. In that case, we can find this antibody pair that can capture these circulating antigens in the system to make this sandwich NASA happening. So, like what you said, like thanks to all the advancements in the artificial intelligence and those smarts really brilliant bioinformatics and AI machine learning scientists. We right now have a lot of tools, say bioinformatic tools that we can work with. So here what we are doing here is that we usually using the, the Q computational algorithms to simulate what will be the uh, antigen and antibody complex look like, basically only using the sequences as the inputs. So in that way, we can to have a sense about, oh, based on the prediction, so like this antibody will bind to the, this part, this domain of this antigen, where the anti, other antibody will bind to a distinct domain of that antigen. So you can have some sense about the binding epitopes without doing any expensive and time-consuming crystallization or CRAN-EM studies to reveal their actual binding epitopes. So this can serve as an actual layer of information that you can connect at the very early stage of the discovery campaign. And also, you don't have to like tell your the what lab scientists to start like mutating everything because the computer is doing it for you. Yeah. So in this case, like it's kind of like AlphaFold. You remember AlphaFold was able to very reliably predict protein structure after you train it on a lot of experimental data, and you keep retraining the algorithm. So now you have an epitope antibody antigen binding algorithm that you can use to retrain your program and from there find the best possible way to do affinity maturation or whatever it is that the client desires, which is really cool. Yep. The simulated results match as well with the EP assay. So we all know that after you make some predictions or simulations, the final question would be whether this will be your own fantasy. You want to validate them with the real hand bench studies, making sure that what you predict in cynical can match well with what you see over the benches. So we have five different data experiments showing you that, oh, actually like those antibodies like A1 or A2, they can form a good pair of antibodies, meaning that they actually bind to different epitopes of the antigen protein. So the take home message is that based on our internal optimization and the uh, the smart and the working hard by scientists, 
we were able to validate our prediction results and actually to our surprise, our prediction results matched really well with what we've seen from this BLI machine that indicating that all those predicted antibody pairs, actually they can form a good antibody pair that can be utilized in this sandwich in that assay. So that's the conclusion here. It's just like giving you a more, little bit more confidence about what we are doing with computers. So this has already some what the real hand solid and substantial bench data to support our predictions. And it's not just like the regular antibody. Of course, another way that we had talked about antibody engineering is just to change the antibody structure itself. So you have your intact antibody. Here's your 150 kilodalms. We've already talked about how a large antibody is probably very difficult, particularly if you're trying to deliver it into nervous areas. Uh, the blood-brain barrier would probably prevent an antibody drug from sneaking past. So now yeah. you have mini bodies or diabodies or even fat fragments. And then we can also talk about camelid antibodies, which are different. They are VHH-based. They are basically heavy chain only antibodies. There are alpacas and llamas being used in urogen and now clonal in order to generate these specialized antibodies. And of course, we take very good care of our an animals. We use the Wagyu analogy in which, you know, if you pamper the cow really, really well, when you're finally ready to kill it, the meat's going to taste extra good. So in this case, if we take care, good care of our animals, which is required by law, but also it's something that you should do anyway. Just make sure that they have the best feed and welfare possible and best veterinary care. We have a facility in Wuhan that breeds and fosters alpacas, and we also have something in western Massachusetts for the alpacas and the llamas to roam around in. And from there, we can actually use them to accept an antigen and build particular antibodies. So they do build a regular heavy chain, light chain antibodies, but they also build these specialized VHH antibodies. And we can use phage display, we can use NGS, and we can use single B cell sorting. Do we still do phage display in-house? We just feel that phage display was a powerful platform that was invented in the 1990s. It's well established and it's still very useful nowadays. But as scientists, we want to show off our intelligence. We always want to come up with something new, creative, and something fun to work with. So by looking at the available tool sets in the field, we realize that we can maybe leverage the NGS sequencing. The reason behind that is very simple, and that's because the antibody from the NAMAS, they only represent one chain. So we don't have to worry about the mispairing between the heavy chain and the light chain. So there will be only one chain that we need to sequence from. So in that case, we can get a lot of the deep data or a rich data set out from NGS sequencing with millions of nanobody sequences. And the next question would be, how can we identify the binding and the functional clones from those millions of different NGS sequences results? And thanks to all the cool algorithms and the, the scientists here, that we were able to work out our own way to leverage both NGS sequencing and AI algorithms to directly fish out the powerful binding clones from the sequencing data. And so it's very important, I think, to make a distinction between the original VHX antibody, which is the whole heavy chain, it's paired up, so it's still bivalent, and a nanobody, which I believe is just like one single immunoglobulin domain that 
contains yes. the antigen binding region. How are you actually employing a process to turn the VHH into the nanobody? Is it as simple as just truncating the gene at that point so that you only get that first uh, IgG, or is there something else? It's as simple as that part. Basically, like you will find some nanobody-specific primers that can help you amplify out the nanobody-specific genes from the whole piece. So in that way, you will be having that amplicon out from the PCR results that you can send out for sequencing. So it's nothing fancy here. And it's just a VJ. So there's no D segments in the amyloid VHH heavy chain antibody. It's just V and J segments, huh? So you are able to actually study this using next generation sequencing. Our workflow predicts to filter out the functional clones from the minions of the NTS sequencing data. So we have a hypothesis here, or assumption here. So you can imagine that during animal immunizations, those antibody sequences, they will keep involving themselves. So our hypothesis here is that for those antibody sequences, which are more distinct or more evolved from their original germline centers, we would predict them to be a stronger binders. And the reason for that is because during all these antigen immunization process, all those B cells and the sequences will undergo numerous affinity maturation, and they will keep evolving themselves and introduce mutations onto their sequences. So for those uh, antibody clones that have a higher or longer evolution distance from their original common ancestor, we will predict them more likely to be strong binders. So that's where our algorithms stands as the prediction. So what we are doing here is that more like to build this uh, direct evolution tree to help us identify what will be the terminal evolved amino acid nanobody sequences out from this whole evolution tree that we will take them out and to express them as soluble proteins and validate whether they are actually your binders or not. So that outlines our general work plan that's to explain the, the black box of our algorithm for this NGS plus AI algorithm prediction of functional clones. Yeah, so it's basically like a computer-based somatic hypermutation to yeah. make your antibody bind better or just bind differently because you don't always need a strong binder, but you need something that just binds in a specific way that it can maybe engage and disengage at a specific time, half-life kind of things. But uh, yeah, that's very interesting. And it seems like you are able to show good binding, like you said, with yep. the, this NGS data. So this actually tells, this this would be an infectious disease target, uh, which is always very easy to work with because those antigens are very immunogenic in NAMA and alpaca. So we usually get good antibodies. So this representative data that after our NGS sequencing, after our AI algorithm prediction, we randomly picked about 24 winners of our algorithm selections, and we did this bench work to validate them. It turns out that all those selected uh, nanobody sequences, they all can bind to these uh, infected disease spike proteins to different extents. Although some antibodies may be uh, more potent binders, while the other ones seem to be uh, weaker binders, but I think the take-home message here is that we were able to deliver good binding clones out from our like this NGS pipeline, leveraging from the cutting-edge AI machine learning algorithms. Yeah, you're basically validating the computer model uh, yes. through experimentation, and that's really cool to actually see that your models are working. 
that's where most of these algorithms are focused on because you need this, these particular loops within the IG domain to recognize and bind very, yeah. very tightly and specifically to your antigen. And you're using antibody fab engineering to enhance this binding affinity. So that's it's really cool. Just a very simple illustration of what we are targeting. Do this. And from there, you can also use in silico maturation for your VHH uh, camelid antibodies. So you're you're not crystallizing anything, as you said. So you don't need to produce like buckets and gram quantities of this protein. You can actually simulate it using ribbon diagrams or space filling diagrams in order to see like, is it going to bind and how well is it going to bind and so on. I think for this one, we can disclose what the binding target is. It's actually the COVID-19 S protein. And we were able to identify a bunch of different potent neutralizers against this uh, COVID-19 S protein. However, for nanobody, it usually suffers from suboptimal binding affinity because it's like one intense the size of the fullness antibody. So the objective here is to further enhance the nanobody's binding affinity against the COVID-19 spike protein. We didn't do any crystallization or QNEM study to reveal the actual binding epitope or paratops. What we are doing here is that we first using the algorithms to predict the structure of the nanobody. Second, we're using these dock docking algorithms to dock the nanobody onto the antigen protein and to identify the binding interface. And from there, our biochemistry will start to make some rationale designed point mutations that are actually involved in this interface to predict what will be their contribution to the binding interactions, whether this single amino acid substitution is going to contribute to a stronger binder or is actually going to be detrimental to these interactions. From there, we will come up with this panel of different single amino acid substitutions. We believe those will be the first set of the uh, amino acid mutations we want to try with in the benchmark and to imagine that whether we are moving on the right track or not. Because ultimately, no matter how many predi predictions we can make, it always comes to the benchmark results to tell us that whether we are wrong or not. Yeah, and so you probably have to run hundreds or thousands or even millions if you have time of simulations to determine the best targets. Yeah. And I, I imagine your programs probably have what I would like to call a wobble because these molecules aren't locked in space. They're not just going to be rigid. They will move yeah. because yes. of the flexibility of the polypeptide chain. So you have to account for that wobble in the antigen and antibody binding domain. And it does that. It takes that into account during the simulation, which is really cool. It like rock, rocks my brain because I can only think of one thing at once in the computers doing millions of things at once in order to give you these simulations and point you on their yeah. way. And yeah. from there, you can see that, yes, if I mutate the single amino acid in this particular nanobody, it does improve its binding uh, affinity. And yeah. uh, you did, you know, your functional ELISAs, your, your binding assays and so forth. We have the well-type antibody as the benchmark comparison. We did pretty good uh, with the majority of the mutations actually being beneficial to the antibody and antigen interactions. However, we still saw a few mutations. It's actually like not doing good to the binding interactions, which means that it's contradictory to our predictions. So that's why we always rely heavily on the benchwork validation. 
And another thing I want to bring to your attention is that even though we predict all those single amino acid substitutions may have equally similar benefits to these anti antibody infections. So the position matters and also what amino acid you mute into also matters. So it will be the combination of both. And our algorithm can only give you some original direction where to go, but we will still or what refer to our bench work to pick what will be the best mutations that we want, want to incorporate into our finalized clone. Yeah, you, you have to test it in the real world and here's your finalized clone. Yeah. Uh, you have mutated actually four different amino acids in yep. the final clone that you chose. So you looked at the single mutations and then I guess you re-evaluated the algorithm. You did more modeling and you said, Maybe let's combine all the four best mutations yep. and see what happens. And this, it turns out that this gave you the best binder. So that is actually kind of cool. That it like basically reduces the amount of work you have to do in combination. You just pick a few to test, you reset the model, and then you you are able to generate your final clone with a uh, hopefully a minimum of work because all that pipetting is not fun. <laughs> yeah. So I think you are right. We have to assemble some of those benefiting uh, mutations. Two of those mutations, 99 and 101, they are very close to each other. So during like, the second round of simulation, we want to make sure that the mutations we selected, both of them contributing to this interaction by themselves, but also they are compatible with each other in, the, in terms of the structures in the 3D modeling. So that's the uh, essential idea behind. So otherwise, you will have to go through this time-consuming and tedious double mutation, triple mutation, and this cultural mutation in the end. But we were able to achieve that all in once using our algorithm and the cloud computing, and then just the finalize the benchwork validation. I think it's pretty cool. So as with any technology, we have to continuously improve both as scientists and as like a company to avoid being left behind and just our whole goal as Eurogen and Aplonal is to push the bounds of what we can do to help other people push the bounds of what they can do. And so I was wondering, I have a few ideas for research directions, but what do you think are the next steps in improving the antibody design and engineering processes to just allow for more effective therapeutics in immuno-oncology, cancer therapy? Maybe you make a better migraine medicine. Maybe you make miniature proteins that can be used as drug deliverable drugs. Probably antibody structures we haven't even thought of yet because we talked a lot about bivalence, uh, bispecific, fat fragments, and SCFBs. What is your opinion on where we need to go from here? First would be antibody engineering. So what will be the future engineered formats of antibodies? Nowadays, from my observation, we saw a lot of the bispecific, multi-specific antibodies coming into the fields. So that may be one direction. And another thing is that we have seen a lot of the antibody plus ideas coming out, meaning that originally we are working with the naked antibody by themselves. But nowadays people have trying to do antibody drug conjugates, antibody oligo conjugates, and maybe antibody fusion protein conjugates. So in that case, antibody more likely to serve as a delivery modular that can help you bring your or payload to the target cells or target tissues. From there, your payload, either toxin, oligos for gene therapy, 
or some other different small molecule panels can already play their own critical role to, to cure the disease. That might be represented in another direction, utilizing the antibody plus to conjugate whatever you want and to get the particular drug to the specific tissues. And that's all because of antibodies are well known for their high specificity. The second aspect would be the new indications. So we know that traditionally people have been working with the immune oncology, autoimmune disease. But nowadays people seeing that all those low-hanging fruit have already been picked. So people have to try something more challenging and difficult. My hope is that people can pay more attention to CNS disease, the central nervous system disease, and also the metabolic disease. So those would be the area or indications that biologicals, they rarely touch basis on in the past times. But I can see a trend that people starting to uh, working with some cool targets and indications to those disease areas as well. Another thing that I have seen nowadays, people are trying to work with some intracellular targets. Because traditionally, mm -hmm. we know that people only use antibodies to target on cell surface receptors. But nowadays, I've seen some really cool publications and uh, research studies talking about how they can leverage the cell penetrating peptides or intracellular delivery methods to bring biologicals to the cytoplasmic regions and target some intracellular targets. I think that may represent another direction for the future uh, therapeutic antibodies in the field. I can talk to you all day, Dr. Chung, but I know that <laughs> you have a lot of projects on your mind because Eurogen is a very popular target for a lot of customers in building their antibodies, and you are a big part of that. So I want to really thank you for your time and just point everybody to appclone.com and eurogen.com. Like both of those places, you can find out how we make our antibodies and you can get a quote and help to start designing your antibodies from antigen design all the way up to final production. So thank you again for your time, sir. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, everyone, for your attention. So this has been a conversation with Dr. Hal Cheng of Eurogen. And again, you can find our subsidiary site at eurogen.com. We hope to join us again next time when we will explore another exciting topic about bioscience research and careers. BioChat is a production of Apple and Technology, hosted and edited by myself, Ken Lump. Please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts and follow us on social media. You can find our various socials in the show notes link to Dr. Baker's page on appphone.com, where you can also find our vast catalog of biological reagents and services, including the CRO services provided by Eurogen. If you wish to contact the podcast directly for an interview opportunity or any comments or to inquire about Apple's quality products and services, please send a message to service at Thanks for listening, and we will see you on the next episode.